Welcome to The Whole Truth with Jill Rosenzweig, a podcast which endeavors to expose the truth behind legal stories that are distorted by mainstream media. And now, here's your host, passionate truth seeker and veteran attorney, Jill Rosenzweig. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of The Whole Truth with Jill Rosenzweig. I'm your host, Jill Rosenzweig. And before we get into this week's topic, I did want to touch upon the case that I covered last week because there's an update and I just wanted to let you know what happened with that. So if you haven't listened to last week's episode yet, I was talking about a county in Georgia where the sheriff in that county put signs up in sex offenders' yards stating that no one should trick-or-treat there. And the sex offenders filed a lawsuit. They were alleging that these signs violated their First Amendment rights. And when I last recorded, there hadn't been a decision that was issued yet by the court. Uh, There had been a hearing, but the judge had not issued a decision off the bench. And I said in last week's episode that I expected that there would be a written decision. And just to let you know, there was a written decision that was issued. It came out yesterday just in time for Halloween, and the judge in the case uh, stated that the signs violated the sex offender's constitutional rights, that it was considered compelled speech in violation of their First Amendment rights, and the sheriff's office has been ordered to remove the signs, and so I would imagine that's happened already in advance of Halloween, and so those sex offenders will have no signs in their yards for this Halloween. And so that's the outcome of that case. I just thought you'd be interested to know that. And again, this was my prediction that the court would decide that those signs were unconstitutional. So it's no real surprise. But I guess if nothing else, the case is a decent reminder to those of you who feel concerned about sex offenders in your area, that you should be looking at the registry and seeing if there are any homes that you should avoid. But Like I said last week, sometimes those registries don't include everyone that you would think would be on the registry. So I wouldn't take those registries as gospel, but I would use them potentially as a guide just to know which houses to avoid. Uh, But in any event, happy Halloween. (laughs) And I hope that your children have a great time tonight and that they're safe. And um, let's move along to another crazy case This has to do with a drug dispute, so it's a pharmaceutical litigation, and I'm not going to get too technical today. It is, after all, Halloween, and I have lots to do to prepare for the holiday, and so I'm just going to give you kind of a brief overview of this case. This case was initiated by a man who's now in his 20s based upon his use of a drug called Risperdal that he took when he was a child. He took it for about five years from April 2003 to February of 2008. This drug was prescribed to the plaintiff because he was having difficulty sleeping, most probably arising from what J&J's expert termed autism spectrum disorder. And the drug was prescribed to the young man as off-label, So it was not approved for pediatric use at the time by the FDA, and it was only approved in 2006, and even at that point, it was only approved for uh, use with irritability arising from autism. 
Risperdal was approved by the FDA in the 1990s, but just for schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, and certainly not for pediatric patients. But the first thing that I should explain about that is that doctors are allowed to prescribe drugs to people for off-label reasons. And so what that means is that the FDA approves a drug, and when they approve it, they approve it for a specific purpose usually, and they oftentimes will approve it for a certain age group. So they may test it out for adults but not children and not the elderly. And so when they approve it, they approve it for specific uses and for specific ages. And at that point, once the drug is approved, doctors are allowed to prescribe it for other purposes. There's no oversight with respect to that by the FDA. So the drug was approved in the 1990s for schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. But then in 2003, the drug was prescribed to this nine-year-old boy. And about five years later, his mother decided that she did not want him taking it anymore. And what ended up happening was that this boy developed breast tissue And he claims in the pleadings that having breasts as a young man caused him an extreme amount of distress, embarrassment, it affected his social life. And that is why he ended up suing Johnson & Johnson and Janssen Pharmaceuticals. Because what later came out was that in 2003, so the exact same year that the plaintiff ended up being prescribed this medication, there was a study that was conducted by Johnson & Johnson and Janssen, where they had certain findings to show that there was an increased risk of young men and boys developing breasts if they took Risperdal. And that study that showed that there was a significant risk of this breast tissue developing, which is called gynecomastia, was not revealed to the FDA. It was not included in the studies that were submitted to the FDA. And so the FDA was not aware that there was this data. And when the drug was approved, there were no warnings that were issued on the label to alert doctors and the public in general to the fact that there was this risk. And not only that, but there was evidence in the case to show that the defendants were going out of their way to market this drug to children. And so not only did they know that there was this risk, but they were also trying to market the drug to a segment of society that was off-label. And so that's where there was a problem with off-label. It's fine for a doctor to prescribe a drug to people where it's prescribed for an off-label use, but the pharmaceutical company is not allowed to market the drug for off-label purposes. And so the litigation had to do with the fact that there was this willful concealment of this danger that the pharmaceutical company knew about and didn't disclose, and that there were studies that were purposely excluded from the submissions that were made to the FDA. And several years ago, there was a verdict in the case where the plaintiff was awarded compensatory damages. So those damages have to do with the plaintiff's actual losses. 
and he was awarded a verdict of $680,000. And there was then a separate trial just to address his punitive damages claim where he was asking a jury to issue an award to punish Johnson & Johnson and Janssen Pharmaceuticals for what happened to him. And in early October, the jury, after a three-week trial on punitive damages, issued an award of $8 billion. And that is the largest award that has ever been seen by a Philadelphia court. And there are thousands of other cases where Johnson and Johnson and Janssen are being sued by other young men who grew breasts because they took this drug. And so the award signals, at least to me, that this may lead to a flood of other cases against Johnson and Johnson and Janssen Pharmaceuticals. Um, and so where we are now is that Johnson and Johnson is trying to ask the court to reduce the punitive damage award. And that's not unusual. So Johnson and Johnson's lawyers filed several different motions for relief. One of them is called a JNOV. So that's a judgment not notwithstanding the verdict. And essentially what that means is that the defendant's attorneys are asking the judge to overrule what the jury found. And the other thing that is being asked of the judge is to reduce the damages award. So typically the gap between a compensatory damage award and a punitive damage award is not this enormous. So the fact that the plaintiff in this case won an award of $680,000 in compensatory damages, typically you're not going to see a punitive damage award that's more than a couple of million dollars in a situation like that. So the fact that this punitive damage award is $8 billion, it is somewhat predictable that the defendants would now be asking the judge to reduce that amount. And I wouldn't be surprised if the judge does just because this amount is so enormous. But one of the things that we should consider here is that in addition to those things that the defendant is requesting, Another thing that they've done is that they've asked the judge in this case to recuse himself because they accused him of acting improperly at the conclusion of the case. So after a three-week trial on punitive damages, the defendants are claiming that the judge was high-fiving the jury and that he posed for pictures with the jury, and that the defendant's counsel is taking the position that the judge was bipartisan and that he was pro-plaintiff and that essentially he's not objective and so he should not be presiding over the case anymore. And there was just a hearing on this and apparently the judge was very upset about the accusations. He was very offended and he has handled cases before where the defendant attorneys have been on the case and he basically said to the defense attorney, you know who I am, you know what I'm like, I'm offended that you would even suggest that I would be biased in this case. But essentially what's going on now, even though there's this $8 billion jury verdict in terms of punitive damages, that doesn't mean that the case is over and that the defendants will actually have to pay $8 billion. What that means is that there will be further motions in front of the court to see if the court will reduce that amount. And then if that doesn't work, 
then what I would expect would be that the defendant's attorneys would try to negotiate a reduction in the amount of damages with the plaintiff's attorneys because if they don't work out some sort of a settlement, then what the plaintiff faces is the defendants then trying to appeal the decision and this case continuing and continuing. And so potentially what we'll see is either the judge reducing that amount or there being a settlement between the plaintiff and the defendants. But no matter how you look at it, this is an enormous verdict and a huge victory for the plaintiff. And not just the plaintiff, but those similarly situated who will now use the outcome of this case to help them in their cases against Johnson & Johnson and Janssen Pharmaceuticals. So I think Johnson & Johnson and Janssen Pharmaceuticals are dealing with a lot right now. But I think that if anything, the takeaway from this case is the issue of off-label use. And the one thing that I wanted to point out is just say, for example, the pharmaceutical company did not run tests or conduct studies to show that there was something wrong with this drug in terms of prescribing it to children and the risk in them developing breast tissue. If there's nothing that the pharmaceutical company knows specifically that makes the drug dangerous and doctors are prescribing the drug with out there being an approval by the FDA for the drug being used for whatever purpose they're prescribing it for, what you could see is a situation where someone takes a drug, it's not FDA approved for a specific purpose, but the doctor is not negligent in prescribing it because the doctor does not have any reason to believe that it's dangerous for the purpose that it's being prescribed for. And if you don't have a pharmaceutical company specifically hiding information or marketing the drug for an off-label purpose, you cannot go after the pharmaceutical company, right? And if the doctor doesn't have any specific reason to believe that the drug is dangerous and prescribes it to you, then they won't be negligent if something happens to you because it's not like they're concealing information from you and they have no reason to believe that what they're doing is dangerous to the patient. And so then you have no one to turn to if something happens to you when you're taking a drug for off-label purposes. And so the takeaway from that is that when you are being prescribed a drug for off-label use, just know that there is this risk that the drug may have some sort of an adverse effect on you and you will have no recourse. So that's something that I think is worth pointing out with respect to off-label use of pharmaceutical drugs and just something to keep in mind going forward. Uh, But in the end, this is a huge victory for the plaintiff in this case, and I think it's a huge victory in general in pushing back on pharmaceutical companies for concealing information that they uncover in the course of conducting studies for their drugs and in trying to market drugs for off-label purposes That's something that they should not be doing and something that as someone who's worked in pharmaceutical litigation before, I am not surprised by the facts of this case. I've seen this happen in other cases where studies are concealed and pharmaceutical companies are marketing drugs for off-label purposes. In this case, uh, one of the allegations was that 
this drug was being presented to doctors with lollipops attached to it. So they were certainly marketing it to pediatricians' offices and making it seem like the drug was perfectly fine for kids to be taking. And the result of this is a bunch of kids who ended up developing breast tissue as young boys and having to live with the consequences of that, which I would imagine were pretty terrible. So I think that this case really is a huge signal to pharmaceutical companies that they need to curtail this behavior and that the world is watching and we expect more and the courts are holding them accountable for their actions, which to me is a victory. So those are my thoughts for this week. Until next time, have a great week. Happy Halloween. And if you have a chance, please take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to contact me, I'd love to hear from you. My email address is thewholetruthpod at gmail.com. And you can find me on Instagram at thewholetruthpod and on Twitter at thewholetruthpodhq. I'd love to hear from you. Have a great week, everyone. Talk to you next time.